This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at Sentry.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. How you doing? I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> David Richards. Hello. I'm also excited, but uh, also under control. Dave Kimura. Touche. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Uh, just a quick reminder to go check out my new course. Uh, it, you can find it at getacoderjob.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that's John Hawthorne. John, do you want to say hi? Hello. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Um, sure. I've been... Uh, I'm John. I've been uh, a Ruby programmer for about nine years. Hope to be one for quite a bit longer. Uh, I'm based in Victoria, BC. Nice. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, we brought you on to talk about the Ruby JIT, MJIT, uh, set up and we had Takashi uh, Kokobun on a while back to talk about it but um, anyway it's still something that people are interested in so uh, we invited you on basically because you'd played with it and yeah just to kind of see where things are at with it these days so uh, before we do that we should probably just give a brief rundown of what it is and then we can talk about yeah what, how things are progressing and things like that I'm sure I mean I haven't um my information might be pretty out of date as well. Uh, I played with it when it first came out, but uh, looking at um, the recent changes in Ruby, it looks like similar, maybe, but probably a bit better. Mm -hmm. um, so I wrote a blog post soon after it came out where I tried to use it to optimize a Ruby advent of code uh, script that I had. Oh, cool. Yeah, I remember Advent of Code. I had a few friends working through it. Of course, I heard about it like halfway through it or something. You can start at any time. Yeah. It is more, it is more fun when everyone else is, is participating. Well, and I'm lazy, so that was just an excuse for me to not have another thing to work on. But anyway... Yeah, I, think, so, I think being a developer and being lazy... Like lazy is an attribute of a developer, right? If yeah. you want to get something done right and effective in the least amount of time, find the laziest person you can get. Say, you have to do this. And they are going to find the most efficient way to get that job done. So I would wear that lazy programmer as a badge of honor if I were you. <laughs> well, according to Larry Wall, who created the Perl programming language, yeah, that's one of the three virtues of a programmer. Oh, I thought I was smart. <laughs> Laziness, impatience, and hubris. So, John, really what we want to talk about is cats. Um, I mean, that's why we had you on, really. And uh, I'm a cat person now because I got a cat. And I notice you're a cat person, too. I, I am a cat person. 
Very cool. And as I understand it, you have a feral turned uh, domestic cat. Yeah. So I was fostering for a while with a local rescue and uh, I may have volunteered that I'd be open to some more difficult cats. Uh, And they gave me two cats who just hid on top of my kitchen counters and hissed at me for a week or so, but uh, turned they turned out super sweet. So I would recommend fostering to anyone interested in cats. I've never heard of fostering cats before. I've heard of herding cats. <laughs> I, I hear it's hard. Anyway, sorry, back to the conversation. <laughs> sorry, Chuck, I had to get that in there. That's fine. Uh, let, let's get back on track, though. <laughs> I'm not on the show to help provide quality content. I'm just here to <laughs> for the giggles. <laughs> That's why I come <laughs> for your giggles, Gary, <laughs> for comic relief. All right, so so let's talk about uh, the JIT for for a minute. Um, now JIT stands for Just in Time Compiler, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm curious. Did you look much into how the JIT is implemented, or was it mostly just seeing how it would affect the code that you had written? Yeah, so I had always been curious. Um, how a JIT would work. And uh, with all the others, it just seems sort of too difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure it makes, you know, the people who work on this full time are really good at it, but I've uh, never contributed to Ruby itself. uh, And I don't understand, you know, uh, like JVM bytecode. Right. Or or LLVM or things like that. But MJIT is, I was relieved to see really, really simple. It just emits uh, C code and then compiles that. And I, I know C. So it was really the need to see something very inspectable. I, I like the uh, explanation that you're giving just because a lot of times we hear about some of these things like MJIT or, you know, just-in-time compiler. And it's like, well, I don't know anything about compilers. That's kind of scary. Or, you know, JIT is one of those computer science terms that I forgot about since I went to school or, you know, maybe I didn't go to school. And so it's, you know, it's a computer science term that sounds scary. And so, yeah, saying, oh, well, it just compiles it to another programming language that you can also read, right? And C isn't terrible. I mean, there are some tricky bits sometimes in there, but for the most part, you know, C is a, a semi-approachable and you can go look up what you don't know. But yeah, so it's like, oh, I'll just go read the C code and see if I can understand what it's doing there. Yeah, that, and that's exactly what I did. It's not the most standard C code. Like, it isn't... Uh, if I was to rewrite this program in C, it wouldn't look like what um, the JIT outputs, but it's mm-hmm. it's something you can understand um, with any sort of similar language background, even JavaScript. Yeah, I was going to say also, you know, I've done a bunch of stuff with JavaScript because I do a number of JavaScript shows, and a lot of them use things like TypeScript or things like that. And so that compiles to JavaScript, right? Not to WebAssembly or anything weird like that. And so again, you know, it's JavaScript code. And if you're familiar with JavaScript, you can go read it. But yeah, it kind of feels different from what you would have written yourself to do the same thing. And so that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So Ruby has, even without running MJIT, it has a bytecode that it uses internally, um, uh, YARV, which it's used since 1.9. And um, it's, it looks a lot like an assembly language, which sounds pretty scary, but it has operations that probably make more sense to a, a Rubyist. So it's things like get this local, 
uh, set this instance variable, things like that. Operations we can understand. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I do like the approachability of that. Again, you know, it's, yeah, it's stuff that we can understand. It's, it's not as scary or intimidating as you would think. Mm-hmm. And kind of almost, I was really amused to find this. The core of MJIT is, a, is an ERB template, which takes oh, really? this byte, yeah, it takes this bytecode, loops over it, and then emits C code. It's like a .c.erb file. Huh. Yeah, I was I was reading your um the blog article you you um you wrote about this and I'm I'm reading what you're talking about. It is very readable and so yeah, that somebody set the ERB up right or it's clean, it looks like I don't feel as nervous looking at the output, looking at what what we're talking about. Yep. So I I'm a little curious then um you know, as you played with the JIT um, what did you find as far as effects that we can expect to see from the JIT in our own Ruby code? I mean, does it make it that much faster or does it depend on what you're doing? Or So that's uh, probably too early to say. And I think the big caveat that we're always given when uh, we ask about the, the new JIT is uh, that it doesn't make Rails faster yet. Right. Which, to be honest, is probably the thing a lot of us care about. Uh, yeah, I think and, and it probably, said the same thing. It, it probably will at some point, but but that's not a thing we can expect immediately. Um, but for so the reason I picked this advent of code as the example is that it's just a really tight math loop. It just does forty million loops of some addition or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to cheat a little, but uh, once I convinced. The JIT to optimize the function, uh, it made it about five times faster. Oh, nice! What What do you mean by convince the JIT to optimize the function? So the way the so the way a JIT will normally work is that it will find hot code paths, co- code that is run a lot that it knows needs to it needs to make fast because just in time is like. It's it's always a little later than than you'd actually hope. It it can't know ahead of time what things you need to make fast, and compiling things is pretty slow. So, um, MJIT has a pretty simple heuristic, which is that if you if it detects that a function's been run five times, it will optimize it. Oh, gotcha. So uh, to cheat, I. Uh, ran the function five times, specifying one iteration instead of 40 million. And that convinced it that, oh, okay, it's time to, uh, this this is a hot function, we need to optimize it. Oh, there's an additional cheat there. I also needed to give it the dash dash jit dash wait uh, command line option so that it would wait until it was compiled before running it the sixth time where I gave it the actual input. What other compilers are there beside from jit? Uh, me coming from kind of a, I understand what just-in-time compiler is, but what are other languages doing? So there's, um, you know, when writing a, a language like uh, like C or Go or or Rust, you can just always ahead of time compile because the language is designed for it. But I think in other lang- other languages just aren't as well suited for it. And there's like Ruby has a lot of problems with uh, trying to like be 
optimized just because it's so flexible, which is can be really cool, but awkward. Um, like all of these optimizations have to be disabled if you uh, do something like redefine what integer addition is, which you're allowed to do. So there's all these little quirks that they have to say, well, if someone, if someone does this strange behavior, we have to kind of not optimize at all. Mm -hmm. um, there's also, um, if you're writing a script that is, a sh uh, you know, run infrequently or uh, doesn't, doesn't have any uh, loops that are run in rapid succession, it probably doesn't help you to just-in-time compile and that interpreting would be easier. So I had a, I, I got a chance to look at your blog article too, and it was really well written. You know, I'm not a great reader of English, even though that's my first tongue. I just have a hard time comprehending it. But your article did a very well job of laying it out. And so when uh, when it does compile, is that code that has been compiled over into C reusable by other workers? So if you have a Ruby on, you know, I know it's not meant for Ruby on Rails right now, but let's say if you do have a Ruby on Rails application with 10 workers spun up, it hits a method which is executed multiple times in succession. So the JIT will create a C extension or a compiled C for it. Will the other nine workers be able to leverage that one function or that one compiled function? to also reap the benefits from, or is it really one compilation per process? So right now it's definitely one per process, um, but I have to imagine that's something they've thought of and will want to look into. Um, that, that sort of idea reminds me a lot of Shopify's Bootsnap, which is a tool that uh, sort of will part it's it doesn't go as far in the compilation but it will basically parse your ruby files and store a cache of that so that the other workers don't have to reparse they can just do the the faster part of the, the evaluation yeah i wonder if we're ever going to run into caching issues and stuff with that with um having a old compiled thing in the temp folders and having new code on top of that and then it just picks from the cache file so we got another type of caching thing to worry about, maybe. It's gonna, yeah, it's gonna have to be very careful. I think right now it's just made uh, as safely as possible, and I'm I'm really surprised by how you know this is a a language with a lot of uh, complicated things. It's uh, I, I imagine it's hard to add on to it. So I'm really impressed by how well this has worked so early, um, and I think a part of that is that they've implemented it pretty safely. It, um, it emits a, a, a special, a new header every time you compile it for the, the just-in-time C to link against and things like that. And do you know if there's any life cycle to the extent or to the compiled C where it's going to only be around for an hour? You know, does it expire that temp folder to get cleaned out before a Ruby process gets killed? Um, so the temp folder, I'm not, I'm not positive about this, but, uh, the, so the temp folder gets cleared immediately after, uh, it's run, but this compiled code is probably going to stay in memory forever. Okay. So that's probably a concern for people with large applications that, you know, this is very likely to, to use more memory. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, one thing though, you know, you mentioned that it, it puts the C file in the, in the temp folder. I think it'd be interesting to see if there were, you know, a flag or an option where you could actually save that compiled C code or even the uncompiled C code, you know, possibly so that you have like a performance um, C extension that you could just, you know, include on your other stuff so that it doesn't have to JIT next time. It just, you know, delegates directly to a C library. Mm -hmm. that, that's a really good, I, I, I have to imagine that's probably in the works. Um, right now there, uh, one of the, you can, so it cleans up after itself right now, but you can specify dash dash JIT dash save temps and it will just leave the C file and the uh, .so, which is the, the shared object which it links in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in that temp folder. And you, so you can, that's how I was able to read through all the C code. And if you were, if you were more inclined, you could also uh, object dump the .so and see the assembly output that it had chosen to use for your exact machine. So that, I don't know, if you, if you really wanted to get the most out of it, uh, and I'm sure uh, uh, the developers of MJIT are, are doing this to see what's slowing everything down. It's it's pretty cool. I'm curious. Do you, do you have any theories about why it doesn't work as well for Rails? I don't. Well, I think it's like you said, where it has to run in loop succession multiple things. Mm -hmm. So unless if your application is very specific on like data crunching or loops, then each request is going to get called one time per second or whatever. You know your traffic slowed is. And it just um, yeah. probably doesn't get warmed up enough. Mm -hmm. And there's there's things that are always going to be not friendly to a JIT, like uh, any heavy metaprogramming, which Rails does have some of. Uh, there's also yeah, there's also a possibility that Rails has been really well tuned for uh, our current Rubies. Um, I, I remember this in kind of the one nine era, where a lot of the the performance the the kind of performance hacks that uh, we used to do to try and make things a tiny bit faster suddenly were flipped and they were now making things slower. Yeah, that makes sense. It'd be interesting too, just to see, yeah, if, if Rails can do something to make it more JIT friendly. Yeah, and the onus on Ruby. You know, I'm sure that's a thing they're, they'll look at um, when this is more stable and in a, a version of Ruby that's properly released. Uh, I would guess it's a thing where you want to make the get the JIT as close to its final product as possible before we start adjusting our software for it. Right. But, uh, but I couldn't wait. Yeah, and a lot of times the way I will structure my Rails application is that I will have a services uh, folder where I put everything in there and it doesn't take calls or objects from active record or anything like that. It's not making out queries. So that way for us, if we needed to take a particular function or class that is very heavily driven on data calculations, then that could be easily and safely extracted out into a Go language extension or C extension. And we wouldn't have to worry about the rest of the application because these service objects are doing one thing and one small thing. So I think if we were able to enable the uh, uh, the JIT, but only have it monitor or look at certain kind of directories or files, 
or a certain extension, then we would be able to apply it to our Rails application more safely without introducing a potential speed degradation. And we would also get the benefit of having the service objects or some other kind of extension or whatever um, do look for uh, potentials for improving the speed. That would be really cool. So if somebody wants to play with the JIT, you, you kind of walk through this in your um, blog post, but do, do you want to just give people an idea of how to do this, how, how to get a version of Ruby that has the JIT in it and then how to run something with the JIT so that they can test out, you know, maybe something that's a little more complicated than advent of code that's six or seven lines long? Uh, sure thing. So uh, it's gotten a lot easier. Um, as long as you have any... Uh, Ruby version manager like RVM or Ruby install. Uh, just install any of the preview releases of 2.6 and then run with dash dash JIT. Now on top of that, you probably want to add dash dash JIT dash verbose equals two. Uh, and that will give you the output of what it's doing behind the scenes, uh, where it's compiling stuff. It's, I mean, it's honestly just worth doing because it's cool to see it working. Um, and then once you do that, uh, that's what led me down the path to to looking into it further. That's really cool. So that works on, yeah, like you said, RVM, RBN, um, Ruby install. I think there are a couple others. Mm -hmm. ASDF. Just, just get any of the, the 2.6 preview releases. Gotcha. Is there any... Um, group online that you've noticed like that you belong to where people really talk about um performance ruby performance that are like if i let's say i wanted to do that and i set up a ruby environment this way i'd love to have somebody else that's doing it but maybe if i was in a slack channel or or some sort of discussion board to say hey you know what would you guys find about this or what do you guys think about this and have a conversation online is that have you found people like like-minded people that they gather anywhere I would um, I would look into following people who've written like various Ruby libraries to to look at performance. People like uh, Sam Saffron who works on uh, Discourse, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, Ju Julia Evans has some really cool writing about uh, uh, her RB Spy uh, profiler. Um, things like that are are cool for learning a little more about the internals and how to how to better manage uh, either memory or, or make your application faster. Like that, plus you, of course. Uh, so everybody having conversations, but I, I like that when I'm, I'm trying to build a confident practice to just start to get to know the people that think the way I think, and then we can, um, you know, build online relationships and say, hey, you know, this is something, or, or read articles everybody's writing or, or just get into the groove of it. You know, that seems to, to get me into, into things faster. I mean, I also just, I really enjoy making, making things faster because so often when you're programming, you're, there's kind of a self doubt in, you know, is this abstract and I've made going to hold up a year from now? Whereas when you're making things faster, you just know that you made it 30% better. So it, it's very satisfying in a, in a very simple way. That's true. You're on the benchmark and you get your score, right? And then it's like golf. You want to get that score down. Exactly. Perf golf. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so 
With the jig coming out, there's also been Truffle Ruby, which has been making a lot of noise on look how fast we can make our rubies. And correct me if I'm wrong, that's a project led by Oracle, isn't it? So uh, even though we're now talking, you know, kind of changing the subject there, of deviating from the MRI to the um, Truffle Ruby, do you think that's going to have a lot of effect on JIT's usage? Or do you think people are... Do you think people are going to be moving more over towards Truffle Ruby just for that speed increase, which, you know, it also doesn't really support Rails right now? It's, it's hard to say. I've heard that uh, on, on the specific benchmark where I got a 5x improvement from, uh, from, M, from MJIT that uh, Truffle Ruby got a 40x improvement. So, <laughs> so it, it's certainly currently uh, getting a lot, a lot more performance. Um, it, it's an interesting distinction, though, in that um, they're sort of, in a lot of ways, they're they're they've taken the opposite approach to this, where Truffle Ruby is a is a kind of new front end on top of a mature virtual machine, whereas MJIT is a brand new virtual machine on top of a mature Ruby front end. Hmm. I, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I hope you know. I've I've got non-zero concerns about Oracle owning a large part of the Ruby community <laughs> as, as a mind chair. Yeah, well, I, I hear people say that, and I heard some of the same things about like, you know, GitHub being purchased by Microsoft. Um, but there's so many other options out there within the Ruby community. I mean, you can, you know, go pick up Rubinius or MRI or JRuby or, you know. So if, if they start being bad actors with Truffle Ruby, people, I think, will move on. Um, you know, similarly with GitHub, right? If if Microsoft is really doing the things that people are that concerned about with something like GitHub, then, you know, people will move to something else. So, you know, I, I don't worry so much about that as long as we have other options, other players out there for that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my Rails applications as well as Ruby versions I always try to stay mainstream and by that I mean with the MRI and with as close to the Rails core as possible with the way they set things up with their configuration and the less work I have to do overall to either hack Rails or Ruby to get what I want done then the easier it is going to be for my application to be supported long term if I'm closer to those but if I deviate too much then the maintenance or the technical debt could uh, be increased quite dramatically. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash rubyrogues. So, uh, what made you want to dive into JIT to really, you know, take this in-depth of a look into it? Uh, you know, it was it was new and exciting and... Uh, and it, it just every step along the way, I was uh, able to continue looking into it further. 
Okay. And let's look into it. Has it really changed how you program? You know, maybe specifically rewrite something or write it in a way where the JIT compiler would be able to take advantage of it? Uh, no, not really. Um, it it was. It's probably a thing we uh, should avoid doing until uh, it's you know a, a more uh, you know finished product. Um, mm-hmm. And it, this really has had uh, no effect on my work. It's just uh, was really fun and cool to look into. So, are there things then that you're doing on your work right now that help with performance? Um, yeah, clearly, I, clearly it's not JIT, so it's something else, right? Uh, just you know, standard standard things. Allocate allocate fewer objects, do less loops, write write better queries, kind of stuff. Yeah, you I found are. my biggest performance problem in most of my code is usually myself. <laughs> That's got to be mine too. Yeah, I uh, keep running into these uh, nine oh four user errors, you know. <laughs> do you, do you find that you've got when you're doing performance upgrades or performance boosts in your own code? Um, do you have a workflow like um, benchmark it and, and make a change? Is that is that your basic workflow, or is there something else you do that's that's interesting or different? So I I would always start with profiling. Um, so uh, I mean you want you want to identify a problem first, I guess, which could could be some sort of uh, larger uh, overarching benchmark of the whole application, but. At some point, you want to run a profiler that'll give you a better idea of where specifically to look. Um, and then at some point, pro- profilers are great to tell you where it's likely that there's performance problems, but you really need a proper benchmark to, to say that running this 10,000 10, times takes this long, and then making some changes and verifying that it now actually takes less time. Uh, yeah. And a, a really great tool for that in Ruby is uh, benchmark-ips, which uh, takes a lot of the, the guesswork away from how many times do I need to run this, and uh, as well as whether you've run it enough times to uh, avoid the like startup cost. Okay. Now, I'd imagine, like, so for if it was pure Ruby code, we'd go straight there. I'd imagine with the Rails app, we would look at the... We need to multiply the the speed against the number of requests, so we get a sense of proportion of this is used a lot, and and so a little gain here is better than a big gain in something that doesn't get used very often. So we can kind of keep it in context of of where people care. But then, but then you get things like benchmark. What was it? Benchmark dot ips dash dash ips ips. So if you're looking at a Rails app. Um, installing a some sort of tooling that would give you a profile over the whole thing would be really helpful. Something like um, Rack Mini Profiler, which uh, will work in development or you can set it up in production where uh, you can add some query parameters to your URL. Sorry, I'm going to repeat that. Where you can add some query parameters to your URL, and it will give you a, a flame graph, which is this really easy to read graph of where your application is spending its time. And then I would probably try to take one of the slow parts of that and optimize it. Perfect. And then you're looking for culprits like uh, having too many objects open or instantiating too many objects or um, bad queries that things 
Um, any, any other kind of gotchas that just kind of they 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 they, sh- they they really pop up when you see that? Like, ooh, I don't want that. I, I would say the the gotcha of of doing the story work more than anything else is verifying that you've actually improved it. I I can't count the number of times I think I've made a huge improvement to something, and that I check out the old branch and. I've somehow messed up my testing methodology and I actually haven't made any improvements. So <laughs> it's important to be careful. Is it fair? And maybe it's not, but is it fair that as a very rough, cheap way of, of testing this is that we could probably also use the, um, the runtime of our unit tests. If our, if our unit tests speed up because it's exercising all the code, it's not, I guess it's not going to be balanced the way that we're talking about balancing it, but, but that would probably be at least a rough idea of, Hey, we, we sped, we obviously sped something up. <laughs> I'm, I kind of feel why not just optimize for that. That's, that's the speed I care about. <laughs> you know, that, that unit test speed is to me, that, that, if that's fast and, and, and good, it seems to be the biggest correlation with my mood. <laughs> want to get me in a good mood give me fast unit tests that i can count on and now i'm feeling confident to to to, to get involved in a project well that's because if it's too slow you go to twitter and then you read uh, political tweets and then it sours your mood right totally <laughs> it's so easy to get out of context with my work if i'm so not careful <laughs> yeah it makes sense the, the reason that i asked about specifically you know benchmarking and and performance stuff before we have the JIT in uh, production or uh, I guess a released version of Ruby is that we're going to be using some of these same techniques to figure out whether or not JIT is helping us. And so I was just curious, okay, you know, yeah, can we put some of this stuff in? And I really do like the the idea of unit tests, uh, runtime being a surrogate for how fast our app is. And, and you can profile your unit tests as well. Yeah. Um, uh, either, you know, there's the RSpec dash dash profile, which tells you your slowest tests, which is not unlikely a good indicator of uh, your slowest controllers. Um, but you can also uh, wrap the entire test run inside of a, uh, a, a stackprof.run or something like that. And it will tell you where throughout your entire test suite it spent the most time. Now, unfortunately, it's probably going to tell you something like loading fixtures or factories. <laughs> But, but it's at least then you know. Yep. Is there anything else we want to dive into here before we do picks? Well, let's, uh, John, do you want to just uh, briefly tell us how we can find you online? Um, sure. Uh, I can be found as uh, Jay Hawthorne, uh, J-H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N, on Twitter, GitHub, most platforms, as well as at johnhawthorne.com. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Dave, do you want to do some picks? 
Yeah, sure. So my first pick is going to be a pair of headphones. I recently picked up the Sony, oh, geez, what are they? The WH-1000XM2s. They are a really good noise cancellation headphone. So when I'm working in the office or at home, have screaming kids or people opening and shutting doors or typing as loud as they can, these noise cancellations do a great job of keeping me focus on my work and not distracted by my environment. So that's definitely a uh, pick of mine. And I, th- I think that's it. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Uh, I did get a new power tool, Chuck. So, you know, Toy. power tools have to go on my list. So recently I made a bunch of blocks for my kids, just like the little tiny building blocks and stuff. And I knew going into this project, I would have to sand all that wood because I'm not wanting to pull out splinters for the next year. So I got a Ryobi sander. It's a just normal plug-in sander, orbital. So uh, it's a nice long belt sander and also has a spinning disc. So that made the project much more enjoyable to do because I could just quickly sand down the parts as I'm cutting them. I was going to say you did it with an orbital sander, <laughs> but if you yeah. have a belt sander, that makes a ton more sense. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. Uh, David, what are your picks? So my pick is uh, a show. It's uh, Stephen Fry in America. Now, it came out in 2008, so it's 10 years old now. And I've been hearing for 10 years, you've got to see this, you've got to see this. And I just, ah, whenever. Well, I found it on Netflix, and oh my goodness, it's amazing. And the thing I love about it is, is it's the kindness of Stephen Fry, but also his kind of it, it's that clarity. He would be a good software developer if he chose to be. <laughs> so just having a, a look around, having interesting conversations with people about America. It's been a great, great watch. It's on Netflix right now. And I've got a, a link in the show notes for the, um, just the IMDB resource. Awesome. Eric, what are your picks? Um, I got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is a tool that we use um, to uh, help us display. Uh, all right, let me start over. Okay. Currently with our company, we are having to give a team presentation and we use Google Slides. So all of us are using Google Slides, but we're a remote only company. We're a remote only team. So we have one person controlling the slides and displaying the slides on Zoom, but we have five people needing to control it. So there's a Chrome extension called it is called a remote for slides and it's at limhenry, L-I-M-Henry dot X-Y-Z. And it is a fantastic, um, fantastic plugin. So all of us can control the slides when it's our turn to speak. We can just hit next, next, next on our browser and then it pushes those slides through. Um, and my second uh, pick is Zoom. Uh, Zoom is actually a very, very powerful tool for uh, doing meetings. And in fact, we're recording this podcast right now using Zoom. Uh, So they have the free version, but um, I just find that it's a very, very solid tool. It's like so much better than Google Hangouts. So that's what I got. Nice. Yeah, we we use Skype for a long time to record these shows and switch to Zoom just because, um, well, there are a few reasons, but uh, yeah, I'm just going to pile on that pick and, uh, you know, plus one it because... Um, it does the recording in the cloud, which is nice. So uh, when we were recording on Skype, people would sometimes point out that I sounded a lot better than my co-hosts. And it was because my nice mic was plugged into the computer that was recording it. Um, but yeah, uh, so that's nice. The other thing is, is then um, 
as long as somebody is signed in, um, it'll record. So if I'm at a conference or something like that and I can't make it, uh, then we can jump in and do some other stuff and somebody else can run the show and yeah, you get an episode. So that's terrific. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks as well. So I've been spending a lot of time lately on um, just the show running stuff, um, specifically the processes um, for uh, podcast hosts, for scheduling and things like that. And I just switched over and I'm actually moving off of like three different tools because they're all sort of incorporated in this one tool. It's called Notion, notion notion.so. And it it does task lists, it does um, spreadsheets, which they call databases, but you can actually turn your spreadsheet view into like a Trello board view, which is really cool. Um, You know, it just groups things together by one of the columns. So if you have a column called status, for example, um, then that works out pretty well. So I've been really, really happy with that. Um, but yeah, I have like a master task list for myself and Michelle, who's the production manager here. And so that's that's been terrific as well. Um, I also want to shout out, I have people sometimes ask me about different services I use for creating the podcasts. Um, our editor is Eric Begay, and he's terrific. So if you want his contact information, just email me and I will put you in touch with him. I don't know if he has a website, but uh, yeah, he wound up doing the editing for the Entre Programmers podcast, which is one that I'm on but don't produce. And anyway, so he's been doing all that work for, for a group of podcasts. Uh, I think there are three or four groups uh, besides mine. But yeah, then, you know, he, he does all of our shows and does a, a terrific job there. So um, I've been pretty happy with him. Uh, they also do the show notes. And, uh, you know, we're trying to refine that a little bit. But that's that's been well done as well. They They do a pretty good job on that. So... I've been happy with that. So yeah, if you want his contact info, just let me know. And yeah, one other pick that I have, and it's it's sort of a lukewarm pick, I guess. So there's this book series that I've been listening to on Audible that I have loved for a long time. And the last book came out. Um, and it's The Iron Druid Chronicles by Kevin Hearn. And I think there are seven or eight books in the series. Anyway, so I, I listened to the last book. And I have to say, it was a little bit disappointing. Um, but if you're looking for a good book series where, you, where you'll enjoy everything else, I guess, uh, definitely check it out. And and it does wrap up nicely. The ending's appropriate. Um, I think the two things that I, I was kind of disappointed in were, one, um, he, he gets a little bit preachy, for lack of a better term, on like the evils of capitalism and uh, the evils of, um, you know, uh, the way that humans have treated the environment. Um, some of which is somewhat understandable given the viewpoints of the characters, but I felt like it was a little bit too much. And the other thing is, is that uh, throughout the rest of the books, uh, one of the characters provides a lot of comic relief and that character wasn't really in this book. So it didn't break it up enough for me to kind of muscle past the parts that I didn't care for in favor of the parts that I really enjoyed. So, you know, that said, you know, it it does wrap up nicely and, and I didn't hate the book. I just didn't enjoy it as much as the others. So anyway... But yeah, I'll, I'll put that in the links as well. John, what are your picks? Uh, my first pick is a series of blog posts from Julia Evans about how she wrote the RB Spy Profiler. Uh, and it's kind of, uh, it's just a great joy of learning more about uh, this Ruby program that we use all day, but often don't you know dig that deep into how it works. And uh, my second pick is the video game Celeste, which uh, has great art, great music, great gameplay and a surprisingly touching story. All right. Well, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. 
All right, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we will catch everybody next week. Great. See you later. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.